Welcome to another episode of Thick and Thin, where ball is always life. I'm your host, Karthik, here with my co-host, Nathan. What's good, Nathan? What's up, man? So much is going on. We're on the precipice of a lot of action returning two weeks away from the NBA, and it's been hilarious and awesome and we're all living vicariously through like 300 players stuck in this bubble in orlando seemingly having the time of their lives but really probably bored as hell thank god for that twitter account um i forgot the name of it but the guy who compiles all the different player yeah. stories and nba uh, bubble tweets life. nba bubble life and matthias Tybel, um who has been documenting everything in his vlog series and honestly it's it's a pretty cool look into what these guys are doing and I can't say I expected anything different. It looks just as kind of boring and <laughs> uneventful listen, as I expected. It's summer camp with all your best friends. The fact yeah. that they're bored by this shows you how awesome their real lives normally are. Because I think this would definitely be the best summer any of us have ever had if we had that chance. Dude, can you imagine? Like, if, if we were uh, quarantined off in this nice hotel uh, out in Florida and, you know, the worst we have to do is sit in our hotel room and play 2K, like... I'll take that deal. Yeah, you play basketball, you work out, you go fishing, you go bike riding, you play golf, play video games all day. The only thing that I would say that's crazy, and I think this only actually applied for non-players like media members, when they first got there, they the seven-day quarantine without exiting their room is pretty yeah. insane. Um, you know, they I think they leave once a day just to get tested, but otherwise they literally don't leave their hotel rooms. And look, they don't have a presidential suite like Dame Lillard. So, you know, with with the players, they got tested at their facilities before making it to Orlando. But with the media members, there's no you know tracing on what they've been doing before the bubble. So they had to take this extra precaution. That sounds pretty brutal. Yeah, I saw Ben Gulliver posting videos like he's doing a workout. He got like 13,000 steps in one day just pacing his hotel room. He's lost like, <laughs> a crazy amount of weight. Yeah, he's, he he's in weird. good shape now. But but, uh, but yeah, it's been it's been fun, man. It's been kind of interesting. At least it's something, right? Like as opposed to weeks of nothing, this is like something. I'll take it. It's some kind of content. Coronavirus wise, there's two positive tests. Basically, the only thing that matters is who's tested positive post bubble. Um, yeah. We knew a lot of guys were going to test positive, kind of living their normal lives. So there's two positive tests. I believe one of which was Michael Beasley. Um, because he got it and then left the bubble. I don't think that they've reported who the other person is. And to me, that's encouraging, right? I know two is, you know, they're hoping for zero. They're always hoping for zero. But given that it's not a true bubble, that's probably unlikely. Uh, I think they just do a really good job of quarantining you off right away. So there's really no um, exposure or there's no interaction with anyone else. Um, and look, more and more you look around the sports world the more and more you realize that the the level of precaution and the level of uh rigor the nba has taken to put this plan together is second to none frankly it's incredible and i have actually a lot of faith that it's gonna i think it's gonna work out we just gotta cross our fingers that none of the big stars get covid but um the fact that only few people test like you said two people tested positive in the bubble at a certain point, everyone's in the bubble, and if no one's really coming in or coming out, like if they do, they seem to be a pretty good job of monitoring that. Yeah, you're not going to have any more cases, right? Yeah. Ideally, like everyone's quarantined together. So that's the whole purpose of this thing, and so uh, I think we might be on a, a good path here. Knock on wood. Yep. All right. So a lot ahead for us. Uh, can't wait. I think two weeks from today we go live with. Um, 
Pelicans and I forget who they're playing, but the second game is Clippers Lakers. Who cares? Zion's involved. And then Clippers Lakers. We don't know if Zion's involved. Yeah, that's true. He left for personal reasons. Hope everything's okay with his family. But Wait, can we also talk about how ridiculous it was how they said, oh, we don't know how long he'll have to quarantine when he comes back? Well, it's true, right? Because, I mean, what? This is kind of. Isn't there some protocol for that? Like, if you come back from the bubble, you got to do this. I feel like they're just trying to, they want to put whatever timeline to make him show up for that first game. Because here's the problem, right? The whole bubble, the whole thing was set up for Zion to be able to make the playoffs. He's not like a playoff team already. So it's not like he could load manage. It's not like he could miss the first couple games. He's got to go, and they've basically got to win. Not win out, but I mean, look, Portland's going to be competitive. If De'Aaron Fox comes back, the Kings are going to be competitive. And you, you got to be the ninth team, not just within four games of Memphis. You have to be the ninth team. So they need him out there. Um, but I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, may, this is the thing, right? When LeBron gets it and he's asymptomatic, maybe they just bury that test. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> he is going to be like, just keep it hush hush. That's what I worry about. But all right, there's so much to get to. I, I wanted to actually talk. I don't even think we have time because we're trying to keep these somewhat tight, you know, crisp 60 minutes. But I wanted to talk to you about Patrick Mahomes deal and how it was basically the first NFL contract that superseded, you know, the biggest star deals in the NBA. I thought that was interesting. We're going to have to get to that another time. We're mm-hmm. going to our second edition of NBA Dime Machine. Now, there's been a lot of conversation. People like the concept. They hated the name. Uh, one of our loyal listeners, Matt, suggested Ball Recall. Ball Recall, I should say. I think they're equal. We agree they're equally lame. Um, and we're just going to stick with Dime Machine because it's already been branded. So this season, you know, last week we looked at the 2007-2008 season that led to the Celtics' uh, first championship since the Bird era. This year we're gonna or this week we're gonna look at the 2011-2012 season. There is a lot that happened. Um, let's start here. The season was only 66 games because the NBA owners locked out the players. Um, so, you know, one of the things that was happening right about now is this was the last vestiges of sort of that old money contract before that new TV deal came in, before salaries skyrocketed and revenue skyrocketed. Um, you know, BRI, basketball related income, we always talk about this was 57% uh, going to the players beforehand. The owners negotiated this down to an average of 50%, which was a huge win for them. At the end of the day, it didn't matter because the money went up for everyone. But this was, you know, people forget this was before Balmer bought the Clippers before the valuations were all over the map. So you know, take us back to what you were thinking during that lockout and, and where you landed in terms of how the players faced, you know, kind of made out out of this. Yeah, you know, to be honest, at that point, uh, so we're talking about 2011, 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm freshly out of undergrad, as, as you are as well. Yep. I'm actually living back at home, working and consulting. Same. So I'm, I'm doing the grind, the, the grind that you're doing right now um, and you were doing back then too. But um and to me, I, honestly, I wasn't keeping up with all the details. Like to me, yeah. I was not worried about whether the players are going to get the right share and things like that. I was just craving basketball, man. I'm living at home. I need something. I'm working long days, and all I remember was just um, kind of hope every day checking the news to see if there's any progress made. And it took a while. It took. It was. I actually thought it would get settled a lot earlier, um, mm-hmm. sometime in November. 
And they dragged it on for quite a bit. And I think the fact that it went all the way to December and the players had to sell 50%, um, thought they lost out quite a bit on that that whole ordeal. But back then, I'm not thinking about it like that. I'm just, I just want basketball. Want basketball. So. And I, th- I think a lot of people approach it with that aspect, right? Where you blame the players because that's who's on the forefront. We saw something very, very similar, albeit different circumstances, but with baseball this summer, where the owners are trying to hold them up for, you know, probably a below market value deal. Um, you know, all fancy is like, why the hell aren't you playing? Right. Like, why aren't we getting games? And like, they don't necessarily understand the business ramifications. Look, this was a time in the league. 22 out of 30 teams claimed they lost money uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of having operating income in the red. Now, we what we know about let's let's take the explosion. You're in the tech tech industry. What we know about the explosion of tech stocks is you can make money when you're not making money. Right. We see all these companies. It's accounting losses. It's not necessarily real losses, but the the you know there's no obligation to open their books right the los angeles lakers are not a public company there's no sec filings and so you kind of had to take them at their word a little bit and see whatever creative accounting that they put together and you know david stern i think he was much less of a players commissioner obviously than adam silver and this was the last cba that he negotiated you know this was the major concession the players made other than that it was pretty much similar to 2005 they didn't budge on the uh, one and done rule right you still had to go to college yep. uh, they didn't budge on extending um player contracts right you get four years for uh, a new team five years for incumbent the only two other major changes were the derrick rose rule which allowed you to earn uh the next level of max with certain incentives and amnestying which as a Wizards fan, I just prayed every night that they would use that on Gilbert Arenas. He ended up getting traded to the Magic, used it there. But um, but yeah, so I think it's interesting. Like you said, December was a start and maybe the precursor to what is going to become the norm and what's also been uh, accentuated this season with that December start. Yeah, and that 66-game season felt perfect. Like uh, I don't know if it was the anticipation of the league like, since it had been locked out. Like When it started in Christmas, it started with a bang. Like, I remember there was so much hype and attention. And obviously, you have teams like the Heat, and you still have Kobe and a lot of big names. So a lot of star power, a lot of big teams. Um, but I like the condensed season. I thought it worked out pretty well. I'm hoping they move towards that model. The other thing I'll add, you know, when you talk about some of the franchises that were struggling or reports of different franchises struggling, the Kings, I remember back then, they were going through this. Their valuation was not that high. The Maloofs didn't know what to do with the team. Um, they, uh, also, that was the year they were struggling so much for cash that that's the reason they drafted Jimmer, which we'll get to, but was literally to just put fans in the seats and generate more kind of, uh, excitement around the team. So I think this was something that was, uh, faced by a lot of teams around that league, but a couple years out, I think a lot of teams, you saw those valuations skyrocket. So, and, and you have to remember, right? This is only four years after we just watched Seattle, a basketball rich town get the Sonics torn away from them. So every owner, whether you're the Kings, whether you're the Pacers, you know, whether you're the Nets playing in New Jersey before Mikhail Prokhorov comes to save you, you're always sitting on eggshells in terms of when you might be out of a team because your stadium sucks. There's no fan interest. You don't have a marquee player. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the Kings had just drafted DeMarcus Cousins, but he wasn't, you know, a household name. And as we saw, he never really lifted them to playoff relevancy. So and just um, a few years out of the recession, too. I mean, it's exactly I mean, been three years, but still, like people don't right. have the the kind of income to regularly go to these games, and so they were still feeling the the hit of that. 
pinch for sure. Um, the other really big thing that happened in the offseason, and we got to talk this. This really is a seminal moment in league history is the Chris Paul uh, trade fiasco. Um, so Chris Paul. Now I'm going to read you the two trades. Right. So we know what happened. He had the trade go to the Lakers. It got nixed at the time. David Stern and the league owned the Hornets. The league flipped out that they had just, again, it was because of that last season. There's a lot of linkages to the other season we talked about. It was the league was already pissed about Pagasol delivering two titles to the Lakers. Then you put Chris Paul on a silver platter with the next iteration of that late prime Kobe. So originally the trade was Chris Paul to LA Lakers, uh, Pagasol to Houston, and Lamar Odom, Kevin Martin, Louis Scola, and Goran Dragic to New Orleans. They nixed that. Where they ended up was, you know, Paul to the Clippers for Eric Gordon, Chris Kamen, Al-Faruq Aminu, and Minnesota's first-round pick, which ended up being Austin Rivers in that 2012 draft. And that kicked off Lob City. So talk to me about that. I'm sure you were thrilled as a Lakers hater that this blew up in everyone's face. Look, I was thrilled. I was having arguments with all my Laker fan friends that the league had every right to do this uh, because they owned the team that took ownership from George Shin. Um, and I was glad. I, I mean, back then I wasn't thinking. I mean, it, now when I look back at it, the fact that the league actually pulled that move is, is pretty wild. Um, it's insane. It's absolutely it's insane. It's insane, right? But back then I was thinking about I no one wanted the Lakers to continue to be uh, a threat. And Chris Paul... Like we, he, that was the peak of his kind of, I don't know if it's the peak, but he was in his prime back then. Um, and the idea of pairing him with Kobe, I think, scared a lot of people. So I, I was thrilled. But looking back, I can't believe they got away with it. I don't know if that could happen today. No, I don't think so, because there'd just be too much collective outrage. I mean, even from social media being such a bigger presence in 2020 than it was in 2011. And the, frankly, the, the reality is you could argue that that Lakers trade was better for New Orleans. Um you know, Dragic oh. made an all NBA team like Eric Gordon has never gotten to those heights. Right. Like a first round pick is exchanged either way and some fodder. Um, but, you know, what we need to really talk about is that that trade allowed Houston getting out of that trade, allowed Houston to include some of those pieces in what was, uh, you know, a few months later, the James Harden trade, which is really, really yeah. like a domino effect, kind of butterfly effect type situation. But anyway, so news and notes, I buried the lead a little bit because, I, you know, one of the conditions of us doing this podcast is you could just calm the fuck down about LeBron, but can't ignore it any longer. This was LeBron's first title um, beating the Thunder, uh, the aforementioned Thunder in five games. Yeah, I mean, I think this... Uh, you know, I, I won't go too much into LeBron just yet. Fine. Uh, I will say this season really was about a changing of the guard to me. Uh, and what I mean by that is if you actually look uh, the previous championship winners, right? The year before is Dirk. The year before is Kobe. The year before that was Garnett. The year before that's Kobe. All these kind of the, the 96 draft, some of these guys who were like stars in the 2000s. And this was the first year my, Miami wins. They win it a couple more times and it kicks off this new era. And also the interesting thing about this season is a lot of those stars from like the 90s and 2000s retired. So Shaq retired this year. Peja, um, Jason Williams, uh, Yao Ming, Antoine Walker, like a lot of these big names. And so mm -hmm. 
uh, it was really a changing of the guard. And even a guy like Kevin Durant ends up leading the league in, in scoring. I mean, he, he led the league the last couple of years as well. But this was his true kind of breakout as an elite superstar, obviously yeah. taking the thunder that far. So that's what I remember most about the season. It, it kind of felt like the, a shift. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, and LeBron, obviously, this became his league now. Is Finally, he won his first title, and this kicks off the run, right? So um, it was a big year. You have to think about it from a couple different angles, right? So for me, the thing was not just LeBron winning that title or Durant winning, being a scoring champ. It was in the playoffs, you know, LeBron had the truest version of a podium game that you can ever have, right? Game six, LeBron, you know, they're down 3-2 versus Boston. Bosh is out. So it's basically LeBron and Wade and a bunch of scrubs. I think they started Joel Anthony like 60 games that year, right? So, mm-hmm. yep. You got to think, like, this had not been his time yet. He got swept in 07. He had one of the most embarrassing finals performances for a superstar in 2011. This was kind of still what we would say about Giannis, but with even more hype and even more failure than Giannis has currently had. So you have to think about that scene going down 3-2 versus a Boston team that had the championship pedigree that absolutely talked shit nonstop. And you could say what you want. They were full of full of themselves and probably delusional, but they weren't scared of LeBron. And he goes in game six, throws up a 45, 15, 13, right? And then they win in game seven and they're on to the finals. Similarly, you flip to the other side of the other conference, Durant, they're down 2-0, and it's like, not yet. Okay, see, you still gotta wait one more year. You know, every year they were advancing run one round further. This was their time, but it's like, nope, not yet. Durant took it to another level. He eviscerated the Spurs. They win four straight. Ibaka, Harden, Westbrook, the whole machine is just working. And you think LeBron and Durant are the two best players of the 2010s, right? And so you could argue Steph, but to me it's LeBron and Durant. And this was like both of them kind of ascending to the throne. LeBron's one, Durant's two. But this was the season where they kind of both made that mark in a way that I think since then – um, they've never looked back. And and I think who they beat, the Spurs and the Celtics, two stalwarts in each conference, I think was was a big part of that. Yeah, and then part of that's also the changing of the guard. And the Spurs obviously came back, but at the time, it felt like, I mean, the Spurs have done this a lot, but at the time, it felt like they might be done. Mm-hmm. And it's same with the, the Celtics, right? We didn't know how many more years they had. So um, it was kind of these these older teams that were getting phased out, and, and now it's Durant and LeBron's league. So totally agree yep. with you on that. Last thing I want to say about that finals, um, Harden was really good that playoffs ex- until he got to the finals. Until right? the finals. Yeah, that's San Antonio series. He was, he was amazing. San Antonio series, he was awesome. And, and I think, you know, we can talk all we want about the luxury tax, whatever. I don't know that that was as big of a factor. They've, I mean, we've talked about, people have talked about the Harden trade ad nauseum. I don't even think it was as much the luxury tax because it was only going to be an $8 million difference. I don't know that they thought he was a prime time enough p- player to pay the luxury tax for. And that was really the issue. They essentially picked Ibaka over Harden. You know, you look at that finals, Harden at, played 32 minutes a game. He averaged 12 points, five rebounds on 38% shooting, 31 from three, looked lost, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, this is year three for him. Like, he's 24 years old, 23 years old. I mean, Think about the leash that you get, you have on certain guys and what you try to make a determination about other guys right away. And three MVPs on that team, never been seen in modern history, really, uh, to have them all. Um, 
as you know on rookie deals and into like friendly maxes and to not keep that nucleus around is unbelievable it, it, it can't be talked about enough because you may never see anything like this again yeah and the one thing i'll say in okc's favor is no one predicted Harden to be this good like a third like, there obviously we knew he had talent he could be a 20 22 23 point per game score a guy at the top you know out of his team but he still had that kind of Ginobili-ish feel to him, yeah. um, right? Great sixth man, could easily start, but who knew how he'd be leading his own team? Yeah. So uh, I still think it's a terrible, even back then, it was a head-scratching decision. But I don't think anyone foresaw how good Harden would end up becoming. Like this elite offensive machine, It the leap he took, even his first year in Houston, um, was significant i think they immediately regretted it no matter what they said afterwards i think his first game he was playing the pistons i still remember this he was playing the pistons um when he got traded and we're still trying to figure out what he was but he kind of had the green light right it was his team and he had like now what is a bad game for him which was like 25 7 and 6 but right off the bat his ability to fill up the box score was mesmerizing right And we saw Westbrook start to do that as well, more so post-Durant. But Harden kind of got there first in a way yep, um, yep. because he had his own team starting, you know, 2012, 2013. And, and that was really, really crazy to see because it was like, holy shit, what did the Thunder just do? Um, meanwhile, they're trying to work in Kevin Martin into their lineup. <laughs> exactly. They're trying to talk uh, themselves into Kevin Martin being. Yeah. Well, they still have Steven Adams. So, um, all right. Awards. LeBron won MVP. I think this was his third yeah was it his third so and i think he won it the next year the as next well year, so, mm-hmm. so lebron was you know we're gonna get to him he was sort of ascending into holy shit lebron um i think he had shown flashes this is where it became a nightly occurrence um both on, on offensively and defensively maybe more importantly uh tyson chandler won defensive player of the year i think for the knicks um mm-hmm and that was a Knicks team that won 54 games the following year before they cheaped out and didn't amnesty <laughs> Stoudemire. They did it yep. on Billups instead. And, you know, I'm sure Knicks fans know that all well, uh, too well and good. And then Rookie of the Year, this was a stacked draft, which we're going to get to in a second. But your boy Kyrie won Rookie of the Year. Oh, my boy. <laughs> Showed up day one and he, he, he was 20, 20 a night from day one in the league. He was he was so good that season, um, and we everyone knew Kyrie would be good, but he'd only played what nine games at Duke, so there was still a little bit of like, okay, like how long will it take him to get adjusted to the league? He barely even had a college season, but he came out on fire. So and how yeah, many I mean, how many small guards like that go number one? Not that many. Yeah, exactly. So that that was a big deal for him to go number one in the first place. Um, All right, let's start there with the categories. So, twenty eleven draft. Um, again, this happens before the lockout, right? Because the draft technically happens, you know, in the previous league year. And now these guys come in and they just can't get into their facilities. So it's a lost season for a lot of people or lost off season. I should say, I should say, let's start with biggest surprise. Who would you have as like the biggest guys that jumped off the page, um, from this class? This one is for me, definitely Jimmy Butler. When you talk about where he went versus what he ended up becoming, I mean, he was a senior at Marquette, so he was an older player. He was a nice player at Marquette, but not, you know, nothing, no one that was up on high on everyone's draft boards ended up going 30th. 
No one predicted that he was going to become this kind of star player. He seemed to be like a secondary role player. And he's he was really good. And I think Kawhi is the other one in terms of he still went high. But Kawhi, I remember even watching him and watching the highlights, I was like, this is a classic example of one of those guys who's long. They've got the physical and defensive tools, but he's never going to be able to shoot. He's never going to be able to score. It just didn't see it happening. And his hands were too big. And you can talk yourself into like, you know, that doesn't lend itself to good shooting. Yeah. And clearly he became, he started off as a, as a very defensive minded player, but now he's kind of an offensive one-on-one elite player. So yeah, uh, I think those two for me stuck out. I'm right there with you. Look, Jimmy Butler has got an incredible story, right? He was homeless in Texas, goes to Marquette uh, from community college, 30th pick. The crazy thing is, as good as he is, like he's leading the class in win shares above Kawhi, above Kyrie, above Clay. He averaged 2.6 points his rookie year. Not only was he the 30th pick, it wasn't like he was slept on in the draft or in college. He was slept on as an NBA player, at least needed time to develop. Very, very rarely do you see a guy go from that productivity, even his rookie year, to the heights that he's uh, seen, which is all NBA, all-star, one of the best 15 guys in the league. Um, Jimmy Butler is definitely the answer. And I know you're going to hate to hear this, but you have to, you cannot talk about this draft without talking about Isaiah Thomas. He went 60th. I know. We picked him. Yeah. And if you're talking about what you're getting out of the 60th pick, a career that finished with one top 10 MVP performance and one second team all NBA is not on the list of, you know, here's the bingo of what you're getting with that pick. Let's just let's just call it what it is. Yeah. Fair they, made, they made the conference finals in Boston with him as, his be- as their best player. I know it was a short lived prime and they never backed up the Brinks truck, but you got to mention Isaiah Thomas here. Yeah, uh, Isaiah Thomas. And, you know, the funny thing is the Kings were notoriously good at hitting on second-round picks. Like, uh, they hit on Hassan Whiteside super late in the draft. Uh, Isaiah Thomas, like, yeah, they're, they ended up being not amazing players, but still given the value in the second round. And Isaiah Thomas, you're right. Like, he went 60th, and he ended up getting on an all-NBA team. So Yeah, what can you expect? It's a good one. There's so many talented players, though, in this draft. You look not only in terms of all-stars. There were seven all-stars, but then there's guys like the Morris Twins. There's guys like uh, Tobias Harris, Amon Shumpert, like mm-hmm. just a lot of quality depth uh, up and down the board, which leads us to the biggest bust. Now, there's a lot you can choose from, but thankfully, as Wizards and Kings fans, we know a little bit about draft busts. We each have one um, from our, our beloved team. So I'm going to give you the floor first, Jimmer Fredette at number 10. So, Jimmer Fredette, I actually was very high on. And so, um, in terms of players, I thought would actually do pretty well. I thought Jimmer was going to be good. I was all about uh, Jimmer mania. I was looking at buying his jersey the moment he got drafted. Uh, And the funny thing is the Kings actually traded down from 7 to 10 to get Jimmer. But they took on John Solomon's fat contract. Uh, it was like a weird deal where they, they traded down. Yeah, um, they somehow got <laughs> both the worst pick and a bad contract. They got a bad contract and the worst pick. And then they ended up selecting uh, Jimmer with that pick. Uh, look, Jimmer clearly didn't work out. He was too small. Uh, he also had a work ethic that was, he was very stubborn. It was well known that in practices, he thought he was much better than he um actually was and you know I, I used to think he might carve out a career like jj reddick who 
started off slow in the league, was known as you know, a small white elite shooter from at Duke who can po- uh, score from anywhere. Yep. I thought Jimmer might follow that path, but he was too stubborn. And then, you know, he just, his career was all about lighting it up in China. And I think that's what, where he carved a name for himself. But this was a pick that actually a lot of Kings fans, like, sadly, were actually excited about because he was an electric player in college, player of the year. Uh, and you were just hoping some of that magic would carry on to the NBA. Yeah, Redick is a good comp uh, because they both were phenomenal scorers, not just shooters in college, um, and neither could be that in the NBA. I think Redick did a great job converting his game to that specialist mold where he actually had a very much like a a J curve almost where he was too much of a specialist, and then he became a starter on really good teams, averaging high teens, those, those Clippers teams as well as the Sixers teams. And... I do think there's stylistic differences. Like Redick had a quicker release. Uh, Jimmer kind of had that like pullback a little bit. Um, he's a little smaller, right? Um, so I think some of those issues. But you know, the work ethic thing is is fair, and it's one of those things. It's like we always are like, oh, why didn't this team know X, Y, Z, or why didn't they just pick this guy? And some of these things you just can't tell. Um, we know it's a crapshoot. I gotta go. The European Blake Griffin, number six, uh, <laughs> the Wizards pick, Jan Vesely, whose best NBA mo- moment was making out with his girlfriend as soon as he got drafted. Yeah. Just absolute <laughs> smoke that, show. <laughs> yeah, smoke show from Czech Republic. Um, I thought it was all looking up, right? You know, you drafted John Wall the previous year. They were terrible, and they were going to be terrible the next two years after that. That's how bad this team was. What's the one thing you want to pair with, like, a pick-and-roll uh, athletic point guard who's a pass first guy is a rim runner, right? I think that's how teams thought about building versus shooters, which is how they think about it now. Um, and Vesley fit the mold of, of what they saw from, you know, very, very tragically comparison to Blake Griffin. And he's actually not bad in Europe. He just <laughs> had none of the skills and none of the mental fortitude to make it in the U S. Um, I mean, how many minutes did he even end up playing? Like, or how many games? Like it, it was really dude, low, right? He was out of the league pretty fast. Dude. Yeah. He played 160 total games for the wizards, which is the equivalent of two seasons. Sorry. Overall in his career, 21 of those were in Denver. I think he was in the trade, uh, that brought in Nene. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a disaster from, from, from like literally the jump. I mean, his, Career high in points is his rookie year actually at 4.7. So he might probably bigger bust than Jimmer for sure. Um, And he just, he didn't have any skills. He was athletic as build, but he couldn't shoot. He couldn't catch. He had no low post moves. He was too thin to be a good defender or any type of rim protector. He had no position on the court. Um, And it... (laughs) It really set the franchise back when you think about who they could have drafted. Because I know we can do the revisionist history, but the two guys that were in play at number six were Kawhi Leonard and Clay mm-hmm. Thompson. Um, yeah. Because they wanted a wing. They needed a wing and they needed a big, right? And they chose for the big. Um, and, you know, the rest is history. It's like, okay, if you get Clay, maybe you don't get Beal or whatever it is. but Or maybe those guys don't pan out outside of the Golden State and San Antonio systems. But, um that one hurts. Yeah, Jan Vesely, that one was a. Uh, you know, actually, you hear this a lot about European guys uh, in the 2000s and early 2010s or, or international players. A lot of them just <clears throat> can't get acclimated. Yeah. Uh, and I don't, I don't think it's necessarily that they're bad, but we talked about this with E.G. and Lynn, right? And 
Um, there are a lot of other players who just don't know how to kind of adapt and the players, they're not really welcomed either. And so they end up flaming out pretty quick. And Jan Vesely is one of those guys where he, like, he left literally no imprint on the league whatsoever. Like some of these other guys that bust, like Jimmer had his moments. He had some exciting games. Yeah. I can't, like, I don't know if anyone can point to one interesting or exciting thing Jan Vesely did, which is the ultimate sign of a bust. Yeah. I mean, dude, you look at like, Bismack Biombo, who was who was seven, is is technically a bust because he was yep. picked that high. He cashed out. He had a seventy plus million dollar contract in the summer of twenty sixteen. Uh, you know, you look at uh, even Derek Williams, who was not good, but he did something. He had some moments, yeah, right. He did something. Ironically, the guys in the first round that had the lowest win shares, two of the top three were picked by the Wizards. The others was other was Chris Singleton at eighteen. So, and Chad Ford gave us an A. <laughs> this is PT giving me PTSD. Let's just move on. Uh, Twenty. Oh, who? Okay, let's go here. Who did you think that was going to be good that wasn't? Because I'll tell you, mine was Derek Williams. We already talked about my pogo stick, athletic big man fetish. So it was Derek Williams. He just didn't really add anything to his game and didn't really have a position after you know an awesome career at Arizona. So mine was Jimmer. <laughs> I thought he was going to be good. Um, I didn't like a lot of the guys in the top 10. I, I did like Derek Williams. He, I mean, as a Pac-12 guy, I'm always higher on the you know right. Pac-12 players. Um, I thought he was going to be good. The guy actually I was high, not high on that ended up being really good is Clay Thompson. To me, I was like, I watched Pac-12 basketball day in, day out, and Clay was good at Washington State. I knew he was good, but... He didn't scream NBA player to me. He was kind of lanky. Yeah, he has the NBA pedigree from his father. But I had no idea he'd, he'd become what he became. And I thought even 11 was high for him. But I mean, Clay, you know, there's a reason why Clay has never even remotely tried to lead Golden State. He knows it. He said it. It is the perfect scenario for him. It's a perfect situation. All his weaknesses are uh, masked. All his strengths are amplified. And, you know, if he got traded, let's say, to Charlotte and had to be the guy, do we really think he could be the guy? I personally don't. There are some people out there who say yes. Um, there's some people out there who would tell you he's a better shooting guard than James Harden. I just can't buy that argument. Yeah. I mean, I think we we, we all know that he's, he's relatively limited in terms of how he could be a, a one option. But even... You still have to give him credit, right? He's a Hall of Fame player. Yes, he's yes. Uh, multi-time champion. He's made. Has he made an All NBA team? He has, right? At least he has, one or yeah. two. Yeah, yeah. So at the end of the day, even if he's he's never going to be the top dog, like, he's carved out much better career than anyone could have expected. And at, at eleven, eleven is you don't get that kind of value. And it should be noted, you were in the building, I believe. I was in the thirty-seven building for thirty-seven point third quarter NBA record. I was there wearing my Kings jersey, and I was had several several drinks in. I thought he was going to break Kobe's eighty one points. I really thought like I kept looking up the score, but I was like, "Is he going to hit a hundred? Is he about to?" It's top crazy. World? I mean, when he it gets, was, uh, you want to talk about game sixes? You know, his game six in twenty sixteen may have single handedly saved the, the Warriors dynasty. Um, I've always right. been more scared of Clay than than Steph yeah. in terms of when they heat up. Um, yeah, I think that's fair. You could say Steph's a front runner, but I'm not going to say it. All <laughs> right. Who owned the season? So this is LeBron. Um, we talked about this a little bit up front, but LeBron 
entered this destructive two-way force phase of his career where he was still the single most athletic player uh, in the NBA. He was still young enough where he had the energy to go all out on both ends. And he was starting to add the cerebral element to the game. He's now since become maybe the smartest player in the league. He's lost a little bit of the athleticism. Earlier in his Cavs days, he had the athleticism and still learning about the game. This is the peak where those two pieces intersected, and it was unstoppable. Yeah, and you'd think I'd say LeBron, but I'm going to go a little bit different here. Um, I'm actually going to give it to Kevin Durant. And the reason I'll say that is because LeBron owned it in every sense that, you know, he won the title. They were uh, the best team. Um, But this was KD's breakout as, like I said, like a true, true superstar. Uh, It was his third straight year of leading the league in scoring. But, you know, there's that point where a player has to convince you that um, they can win in the playoffs. KD hadn't done that yet. It's like Giannis hasn't done that yet. Right. But this is the year they got to the finals. They were favored in the finals. The finals was theirs to lose. Ultimately, they they were a little too young. Miami was too good. But um, and game two, if we're gonna say what we're gonna say, game two could have gone either way. Shady foul call. Um, ah, yeah, you're nitpicking. Thunder that I know what you're talking about. It's Thunder nitpicking. already up one zero. I mean, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think I do think it's it's LeBron. But this was really when KD. Like I mean, you you mentioned this at the top. He put himself in the conversation as this guy is either the he is the second best player in the league. Um, and I think LeBron has already established a name for himself by then. Like you said, this is his third MVP, but this was Katie's breakout. Yeah. And look, you know, I'm a big USA basketball guy. I've talked about this a lot. I love Team USA. And this was the 2012 Dream Team or Olympic team was the best team of all time. They would smash the Dream Team respectfully. Mm-hmm. Um, and Durant was the guy on that team. And I think that meant a lot on a team that had LeBron and Kobe on it. And that was this summer. Exactly. I totally forgot about that. Um, but in, for, for LeBron also, I think he was the only player to what win MVP, a finals MVP, the championship and, uh, gold Olympic medal. gold in the same, same year. So it was a banner yeah. year for him as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I think the other guy we have to mention I didn't know when he was going to come up in this podcast, but uh, Jeremy Lin. Yes. We have to talk Lin's sanity. I mean, for all the Asians out there, whether we were, you know, East Asian or South Asian or Southeast Asian, whatever, there's no version in which we're having significant. Like Yao Ming almost felt not relatable because he was seven foot six and it's a little and, bit of a different situation. He's from China. It's he's from China. Different. Yeah, he's an international player. To us, it's it's it, you know he's he's not from the U.S. Lin went to Harvard, was bouncing around G League teams, including the Warriors, which was his hometown team, and to end up in Madison Square Garden for the Knicks, the most famous team and arena in the league, uh, and to have that stretch that he did to go toe to toe with Kobe and win, to hit that game winner in Toronto, to basically usurp uh, the team from Carmelo and and Amari's. Is just, I mean, you know, we're saying a lot of things are unprecedented, unbelievable. I really feel like this can't happen again. Like, this is just an out-of-body experience, I'm sure. It was a wild story, man. I mean, Lynn went to Palo Alto High. Like, Palo Alto was close by. I knew people who knew him in high school. 
And he actually uh, used to cheat a lot. And, and I used to hear stories about him that um, it's like he feels so felt so relatable. Like he's so close. He grew up with people I knew. Uh, Asian kid. I actually didn't root for him at first. I thought he was getting too much credit early on. And I was like, look, we don't need to pander towards this guy just because, you know, he put up a couple good games. But then, like you said, like he started stringing them together and it just wouldn't stop. And then at yeah. some point I was like, dude, this is amazing. And whether it was against the Lakers, whether it's the game winner against Toronto, and it's, you know, the, the bravado he was doing it with, he hits the game winner, he turns around. He's like, that's We've always pictured ourselves doing the same thing if we made the NBA. So, yeah, uh, it felt like you were watching your 2K player. Like, you yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, right. Like, whenever I design a 2K player, funny thing is, like, I, if I make him obviously Indian and he's his name is Karthik, I make him like that six three six four where it's not unbelievable. Yeah, but it's still big enough to actually, you know, if you not, just had like thirty five percent better genes, yeah, but still and, and your general gene pool. And that's what Lynn was, right? He wasn't yeah. a huge guy, but at the same time, he wasn't like Isaiah Thomas out there, which um, I don't know. It was it was a really fun story. And I remember like you, everyone wanted to tune in and see what he'd do next. And this guy, I don't know how. He was just lighting it up. I think the game place. versus Kobe at MSG was, was basically the pinnacle of his life probably. I mean, look, he's actually an NBA champion. He was at the end of the bench on that Raptors team last year. Yep. Um, and he got a poison pill contract from Houston. Um, you know, Daryl Morey trying to mix things up. And he got paid. He got $25 million on that deal. So you could argue he definitely never returned to those heights. But he was a fairly kind of productive player. You know, in Atlanta, Houston, a few stops that he was like, it wasn't just lightning in a bottle. But, I mean, obviously, going from, like, King of New York to anything else would be a letdown. But, look, wouldn't you take Lynn Sanity in that type of career over – Let's say he was a regular 14, 15 point per game guy starting on multiple teams. Like, I'd rather have that just peak that he had and then kind of become more irrelevant for his career than anything else. I don't know that I agree with that. 15 points a game isn't bad. 15 points a game is like Otto Porter. Otto Porter doesn't even, I follow him on Instagram. He just like literally has never picked up a basketball in the last three years. All he does is party and cash in checks. Yeah, I'm not talking about the contracts. Obviously, those guys are the ones who are making bank, right? Yeah. Um, the auto porters of the world. But just think about the lore. Like, there's no auto porter moment you think of. But we all remember Linsanity. You remember we're that creating one, We're creating one right now as we talk about his Instagram activity. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that was a fun moment, man. Um, all right. So, all right. These are the team building questions. So, the first one is, who do you think... Um, had a strange roster construction based on how we think about the game today that actually did well. This one I actually found a little harder this year than the, the previous one because teams were starting to, to shoot mm -hmm. more threes and the league was evolving. It's still like miles away from where we are today. But um, I, I think the Utah Jazz, they were the eighth seed, so it's not like they were an amazing team. I just thought their roster construction looked a little funny. I mean, you had Al Jefferson and Paul Millsap as your two best players. And how often do we see mm -hmm. your guys at the four and five as your two best players on the team? And then after that, it's like, those are your stars. Gordon Hayward is the second season. He wasn't that good. He averaged like 10 points a game. And then you had a, a, a who's who of vets with Raja Bell, Josh Howard, Devin Harris, CJ Miles. 
it was just uh, and they were fairly fairly good. Like I said, eight seed, but you still uh, had Derek Favors, right? Who was a high pick. Yeah, you did have Derek Favors, but it was just all these big men who were your your best players. Um, So I went with them. Yeah, I mean, basically, you could say that three out of their four best players were all bigs. Yeah, um, which is really unique. So I went. The other thing about Utah, by the way, is that they had this situation in a lot of instances, right? They had it with Enos Cantor when he was there. They now had, then they had it with their current iteration with Gobert and Favors. They just love the two big men ever since the Malone Oster tag days. They can't rid themselves of these two traditional bigs on yeah. the roster, clogging things up. In their ammo. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I went with Indiana. Um, this was the year before Indiana made its its real run with the back-to-back uh, conference finals appearances versus the Heat. But, and it makes less sense in those future years because they're actually more successful than they were this year. But this was the start of it um, with Roy Hibbert and David West. Now, the other three guys on the team or who started, Collison, Danny Granger, and Paul George, were all good three-point shooters, right? They all shot 37% or better. Uh, West and Hibbert took a combined 0.13s a game, um, which came from West. That would not happen in today's game, I think, with two big men who are absolutely allergic to the three-point line. Um, and also, not just from three, I think people f- confuse uh, small ball a lot with just shooting. It's also defensive vir- versatility and the pick-and-roll offenses that we see a lot of switch-everything ball, right? Yep. You just can't switch onto smaller guards if you're David West or Roy Hibbert. Um those guys could not stay on the floor. No, but at the time, you know, at the time, Hibbert, you know, the verticality rule was invented and like, look, they led to two conference finals, including game seven. So it worked, but it was very odd that, you know, they didn't get tortured more by some of the small fast point guards that we see in the league. Cause you know, back then you just ran a little bit less pick and roll. You did a little bit more isolation, a little bit more post-ups. Now you see none of that in the game today, at least post-ups. So it's a very fluid defense you have to be able to play. Mm-hmm. Very easy to scheme against those guys. Uh, yep. All right. And so on the on the flip side, who do you think was ahead of their time um, in terms of the way they built their team then that would really flourish today? You got to go to Orlando. Uh, we, we saw this formula first in 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, the Dwight surrounded by, by shooters and they got them to the finals. Like this year, it was the same thing. It was Dwight. It was Jay Rich, Quentin Richardson, Hedo, Jameer. And Dwight had a monster season. Like, people forget 2012 was, I think he was up there in MVP voting. A lot of people actually voted for him uh, yep. uh, for MVP. And they that team led the league in three-pointers attempted by a comfortable margin. Like, I think four more than the next team. And they took 27 a game, which is laughable now. Um, probably at the very bottom of the league. Yep. But, but back then, that was, uh, they were embracing that small ball kind of, um, Spacing around Dwight, the difference like it's what Giannis and the Bucks do today, but the difference is uh, Dwight just still wasn't a offense like a threat offensively. He didn't have enough moves offensively that yeah uh, that team still underperformed at the end of the day. Yeah, I think Orlando. This was the year that he had basically kind of went back and forth about whether to stay or go, mm-hmm. uh, and he ended up opting in to that contract almost forced by the media because he wanted to stay this like image as a nice guy. And this was like the last vestiges of any positive feelings towards Dwight. And they were gone because he wouldn't make a decision and he couldn't figure out 
what to do. He wanted to please everyone, but he also didn't want to be in Orlando. So he sticks around. I remember that year, I think they played the Hawks in the uh, first round, I believe. Mm-hmm. And he had just absolute monster games, like 46 and 19 type type stats. And, you know, they basically, or his previous year, I think, the next year, one of the, one of the years he played, I think, the Pacers this year. And he's like, he's putting up these numbers, but the team's no longer winning. And I think this was his last season um, yeah. in, in Orlando before the trade to the Lakers. Mine is... Um, the Hawks. So the Hawks lost Al Horford to the torn peck. Um, and so they kind of had a little bit of a makeshift roster. And I thought, you know, they played Josh Smith, Marvin Williams up front in the front court next to Zaza. And I thought the idea of playing these like Swiss Army knife type forwards um, is how you see it today. You know, it reminds me almost of like Harrison Barnes, Draymond Green can guard three, fours and fives. Um, you know, Marvin Williams could shoot. He's shooting 39% from three and you still have enough spacing uh even though josh smith was a pretty terrible shooter he would shoot at least uh so very draymond like in that respect um to give enough space for teague and, and joe johnson and you know they had to kind of make do with what they had like zaza is not a traditional modern center but i think building around him and not letting um you know him and another slow plotting forward clog the middle um i thought was pretty interesting that's a good one. Josh Smith, I mean, he was such a fun player to watch too. Like he's one of those guys who we kind of forget about in the grand scheme of things, but yeah. Um because he was so talented and ultimately could have done more of that talent, but a lot. <laughs> needless to say, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that big deal in Detroit hurt his image a lot cuz he essentially just like quit on that team in some yeah. ways. Yeah. And they had to amnesty him like quickly um or buy him out. So, you know, that that I think uh they played a role. Okay. Um, so which team do you think, you know, never recovered? Uh, I guess this was their last stand. Orlando, to me, um, this literally yeah. was. They had a slew of vets uh, that ultimately didn't stay there long. And Dwight, like you mentioned, um, he ended up leaving, was it the next season? Yeah, I think 2012-13 was his first year with the Lakers. First right? year with the Lakers. And, so, and they never they didn't make the playoffs. They had the stretch where they actually finished at literally the bottom of the league, 15th or 14th in the conference uh, for like three, four years straight. Um, and so they never really recovered once Dwight left. And they've kind of been floundering. And now they're one of those teams that's always in that lower borderline playoff team, kind of in, in purgatory. And uh, they, I don't see real direction with them either not even today so that's my pick I, I wanted to pick the knicks but the knicks actually had a really good season the following year um they had a, uh they ended up losing in the second round yeah uh, but they they were what the second seed or third seed that year uh yeah that was the year they won 54 games and mike woodson kind of revitalized the three-point game yeah so th- so i they were kind of a they had made some decisions like like you talked about the amnesty decision like they were kind of playing with fire a little bit. That team, after 2012-2013, they never recovered. But uh, I think Orlando was a clear choice for me. Yeah, and I'm actually looking at it. So I, so the year he went crazy in the playoffs was the previous season against Atlanta. He actually didn't even play in the playoffs this season. He was hurt. Um, so they really went quietly into the night, right? Um, so, yeah, I think Orlando basically is still dreaming about the eighth seed uh, <laughs> eight years later. Like, that's their version of some successful year 
So, and they've picked a ton of just like rotational big men, Aaron Gordon, you know, Mo Bamba, uh, Jonathan Isaac, they have Nikola Vucevic, like who knows what they're trying to do. Um, I'm going to go Chicago Bulls. Now we have yet to talk about this, but this is the playoffs uh, where Derrick Rose blew out his knee. First round, they're the one seed, you know, very real possibility that they contend uh, with the heat. They had won 60 games the previous year. Uh, they win 50 this season and the shortened season. And that team was loaded and they stayed good uh, with the Jimmy Butler iteration, but they never reached these heights again. Um, you know, the previous couple seasons, they were 60 plus conference finals type teams and Rose goes down. He's obviously never the same. Um, he takes, I think, a year and a half to come back and there's all sorts of uh, negative attention towards him. Some of it brought on him by himself. Some of it just the situation. And this Bulls team, you know, now they're in more of a rebuild mode and they went into that purgatory because uh, Butler wasn't good enough uh, to lift them, but he was also too good and Noah was too good to make them actually bottom out. So they went from contender to that middle ground. And I think that that's who I wanted to mention. That's a good one. A team... Uh... I always argue was uh, kind of a fluke. Even the year they was their number one seed, never thought that they deserved the the praise that they ended up getting. But you're right; that was still a very good team, and it looked like the sky was the limit for them. With Rose yeah. being a young player and Noah, they had a good roster. Dibs was clearly a good coach, and they never they never really recovered. So uh, that's a good pick. Yeah, and you think like Tibbs is a great regular season coach. He reminds he's almost like a mirror image of Budenholzer, who's like a phenomenal regular season coach also, but more on the offensive side. Thibodeau is the defensive end. Everyone goes balls to the wall all the time. You know, Luol Deng played through like a spinal tap, so it was pretty <laughs> insane what was going on there. Um, and then in the playoffs, I think when things slow down and everyone starts keying in defensively, he didn't have enough offensive adjustments. Um, yeah, I mean, it's the same thing with uh, Budenholzer. Yeah, yeah, same exact issue that plagues him. Right. Um, okay. What is your biggest what if uh, from this season? I think we talked about the Rose ACL. That's one. Um, anything else that pops into your mind? I mean, Chris Paul to the Lakers. Uh, yeah. If that had happened, obviously – uh, and yeah, you give up Pau Gasol, but I think they would have figured out how to be really good. And I, I think we this may have been our best chance at finally seeing a LeBron Kobe finals. Um, didn't end up happening, and I, I think it definitely altered the course of what ended up happening because Lakers never really recovered. They they kind of started stumbling towards that last couple of years of Kobe. Obviously, the Dwight Howard Steve Nash final desperation move didn't work, and then um, the Clippers began a, a decent run over the next several years with, with Chris Paul, right? Like we yep. ultimately look at those teams as kind of failures, but they were a perennial, not contender per se, but one of those teams that was, you know, always at least the four or five seed. Yeah. Um, and took them out of you know, perpetual mediocrity or uh, so uh, that had a lot of implications. And, and then yep. the other one, Harden was just after the season. It was mm -hmm. 2011, 2012, but it's just, it's still the biggest what if. Um, if OKC had won the title, maybe they keep the band together, right? Like you yeah, said, they, I mean, at that point, they have to. They keep the band together. And then what happens? Do they begin a dynasty? Like that team becomes, I don't know how you juggle the ball between those three guys, but it it's, it's a huge, you know, yeah. what if. Especially with the way the league went, where you could start playing Ibaka at center. 
they always tried to put this traditional center. You know, yeah. I don't know why it was driving me insane. Nick Collison, Collison Perkins. Perkins. Yeah. So dumb. But like you could play Ibaka at the five and Duran at the four very, very comfortably uh, with their size and length. And, and the and especially with the type of defender Duran ended up becoming. You know, um, it's one, one thing I'll add to that. It's, it's funny how every team felt they need to do that. Like the Heat. Uh, they've talked about it, right? Bosch, if they had started Bosch playing the five early, like in that first season, they could have played, they could have had much more success. Um, yeah. But even they were slow to do it. They had Joel Anthony and Elgowskis. They were trotting out these steps just because you feel the need to put a center in it. A lot of teams did that. It's, it's crazy Dude, to think about today. Forget all that. Look at present day, the fucking Lakers. Anthony Davis won't play center. So they're like, we need <laughs> JaVel still- McGee and Dwight Howard to yeah, be on the roster. Is- that's actually a great example. There's like this um, weird hang up that still exists about. Um, so you brought up a couple things that just, this is why the season's so fascinating. It's such a sliding door season. So this was Kobe's last season in the playoffs. Um, mm-hmm. They went the next year with that Dwight Nash iteration sputtered out in round one against the Spurs, but Kobe was out right after that, all of the slew of injuries, the shoulder, the Achilles, and then he, he retired. And so this was his last year in the playoffs, and and that prime or that run definitely gets extended with a healthy Paul versus making these panic trades for you know a broken down Nash and and somewhat broken down Dwight Howard at that Dwight, time, yeah. right? Who already mm-hmm. had back problems. Um, you know, the other thing that happened, Ellis Monta Ellis was traded from Golden State to uh, Milwaukee for Andrew Bogut. Now. This is going to sound crazy to people, but at one point, people wanted some people in Golden State wanted them to pick Ellis over Curry because oh, of Curry's a angles. lot. Hey, look, I was living here. A lot of people did, and people yeah. booed Joe Lacob after he made that trade. Yeah, and because they were like, "What are you doing? Curry's ankles are made of paper mache." Um, and then, what happens if the Pacers don't trade uh, the fifteenth pick, where they selected Kawhi Leonard for George Hill? Um, the first three, four years after that, it seemed like a win-win. Pacers were in the Eastern Conference Finals. Spurs were, you know, they had their second horse next to Duncan to, to, to lift them back up on that final run. Since then, I mean, I think the two players have, have taken diverging <laughs> paths. And that's not Hill's fault. He's a very, very solid player. But Kawhi and Paul George, would that work on a team? <laughs> we had to wait. We had to wait nine years, but... We finally I got it. I didn't even think about it that way. Yeah, they would have played together in uh, in Indiana. And it's a whole different situation, and everything shifts in terms of the balance of the power. Then LeBron's not cakewalking over LeBronto on <laughs> no, the way to the finals every year. He, he would have gotten there anyway. So that's um, the other thing for me. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of moments in this season uh, that could have really changed the course of, of you know the next couple of years. Uh, it's, it's definitely... Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. All right, last question. What team uh, was an underrated 2K choice for you? I'm going with this. You're not going to expect this one. I guarantee you you don't have this team. I'm going with the Grizzlies. So, Jesus. Yeah, but, yeah, but man, here, I don't want to score 42 points every game. No, but but this is this Grizzlies team. Okay, you had Randolph and Gasol. Yeah, they're plodding and slow. Great defensively. They're snagging every single rebound. This is Rudy Gay's peak. Rudy Gay was like oh just a nightmare. I mean, he could dunk from anywhere. He could shoot the three. So you have him. You have Conley at the point, who's fast, and he could also shoot the three. And OJ Mayo, this was like the last year where he was actually somewhat decent. 
And as a 2K player, he was awesome. Uh, yeah. Relatively athletic, good shooting. And then you had Battier rounding out that starting lineup with at the, for like a 3 and D kind of player who just post up in the corner and hit threes. So this was actually a pretty good offensive team. I remember playing with them a lot, despite the, you know, they became the grit and grind Grizzlies or known as that a couple years later. Um, in terms of the Mount Rushmore of players who are not that good but turn into superstars in 2K, right next to J.R. Smith is, is O.J. Mayo. I'll exactly. give you that. I'll give you that. Also, looking at this roster, guess who was on it? Uh, Mr. Gilbert Arenas, Hibachi. Oh, yeah. Like 74 he overall. Yeah, he played like barely anything that season. Yeah. Um, um, wow. Yeah, no, I could see that. I mean, you still have the Randolph-Gasol pairing. So... The two best teams, Thunder were the best team, right? Yeah. That's mm-hmm. not underrated. This is cheating. I don't think it's underrated, but I had to go Lob City Clippers. Like, we didn't even talk about them enough, but okay. they weren't that good yet. But this was the year I was born. Jordan, um, Griffin, and Paul. And you have Crawford on that team. You have uh, some other guys that can shoot the ball. And... I think that team was also really fun in terms of just pure highlight reels. They became a perennially fun 2K team after that. They'd yeah. always have shooters. You'd have Paul, and then you had you could throw oops all day to, to Jordan and Griffin. And the best part is, since it's a video game, they're not bitching at each other and at the refs 24-7. So you don't have to deal with <laughs> yeah, any of that. You have to deal with none of that. Yeah. Um, this is what, 2K12, I think? I don't remember. 2K11, yeah, I guess it would be. This was no, the 2K12. Code? 2K12. Oh, yeah, 2K12. It comes out in 2011. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, one other thing, another loyal listener, Sean, brought this up to me when I told him we were doing this season. Only season from 98 to present day where the Western Conference was represented by a team uh, from a state other than California or Texas. Yeah, you texted me this, and I, that blew my mind. I was like, what? I had to go through all the, the championships and... That's we're talking twenty two years yeah. and only one season did not feature a California or Texas team. And the other thing is Texas and California have a combined seven teams, right? Yeah. Um, and three of those teams or two, yeah, three of those teams were not even in this run, right? The yeah. Kings, the Clippers, and the the Suns. Rockets. The Suns, did you say? Oh, sorry. I was thinking of Pacific Division. <laughs> yeah, the Kings, the Clippers, and the Rockets have not made the finals in 98. Yeah. So this was all four teams, uh, mostly the Spurs and Lakers. But that's a pretty wild stat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, def- it's like that one stat with uh, no finals without Robert Ory or Steve Kerr or something for like, I don't know how long. There was a huge yeah. stretch. Um other, you know, other thing I want to mention about the season in my, my notes, uh, this was where Rondo... Um, remember when Rondo started getting mentioned as a top five point guard in the league, top three, and oh, yeah. he had a couple moments in the playoffs where he was just putting up absurd numbers. Yeah, um, it's like I, he had a couple seasons where he did that, but I think this season was really one of those seasons where he he truly started to break out and kind of become seen as one of the best players on that that Boston. Oh, you team. could argue by this point he may have been their best player. Um, yeah, he, I think this season he might have been the best. Yeah. Which is crazy because their title season, he was effectively along for the ride. Um, you know, but he was second team all defense. Um, he was third team all NBA. So he had the hardware from this year. And, and playoff Rondo was another animal. He went straight at Wade, went straight at Braun. And I mean, I think. It was unreal. 
if you got all those guys in like a room and were it was like this is off the record, tell the truth. I think Braun would, you know, there's no love lost between those Celtics and Heat teams, but I think he would give Rondo his due. And obviously now his he's a teammate, so yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, right. man, it was a fun season. I liked it a lot. Uh, obviously, it meant a lot to me because LeBron won his first championship. You know, I think I was pretty much almost in tears that day. Um, so it it was definitely a really fun season. Yep. All right. To wrap up, to quote LeBron, uh, it's about damn time. That's what he said when he won that first title. That's what we're feeling with a couple weeks to go. So hope you all enjoyed the episode. Uh, please rate, review, and subscribe to Thick and Thin on all major podca- podcast platforms. We're now on Instagram and Twitter, both at Thick and Thin Hoops. So please give us a follow. Um, I'm tweeting during the workday. It's probably not a good idea, but... You know, and I I'm also it, getting love it. You're getting into people's like, you know, you're getting into arguments, getting into people's mentions. You're saying some things that I'm like, uh, I don't the know. The thing is, I'm too respectful, though, right? Because like someone will like say something to me and kind of call me out. And I'll give them the full 280 character explanation, including <laughs> my apology. Um, but yeah, check us out. Uh, appreciate all the listenership as we make it through month four of this quarantine and we're very very close to live sports keep your fingers crossed until it happens but this was fun man and uh, we'll talk to you next week